0: I would like to offer you some words of comfort this morning, some good news, because this week has not had good news as a part of it. A week ago, we hadn't yet experienced the worst mass shooting in United States history, at least not the most immediate number that we have. And the news that has come out of the events of last Sunday night Reveal our desire to try to figure out what to do about this. Various thoughts and considerations are happening in in different dialogue groups about what does this mean? How did this come to pass and how can we make sure it never happens again? People in their various sides have entrenched themselves further in their position those that advocate for gun control have taken up that banner again, put out the words to call our country into tighter gun regulation. They're demonstrating through doing sit-ins and various public demonstrations, advocating again for that position. And the other side says, it's not guns that kill people, it's people that kill people. And so that side has, again, taken up their point that this is a bigger problem than a particular tool, and that we need to consider what it is that brings people to this point of carrying out such destruction. Those two positions have become further entrenched in trying to find a solution to the way forward. But I dare say that they aren't showing us, either one, a way forward. If either one of those was a real, viable way forward, we'd already be there by now. It's been five years since the shooting at Sandy Hook. Which was the worst mass shooting in the history of the United States five years ago? We wonder what it is that we can do to not have this happen again since it happens every two years. I know that there has been some speculation of the mind of the person who carried out this horror, Words have been passed around about mental illness, and perhaps he did have a form of mental illness. But I have friends who have mental illness, and they aren't thinking about doing these kind of things. I think there's a temptation sometimes to categorize how it is we got here so that we can put it aside or put it on a shelf or at least get those people to work on it. Maybe we feel like it then frees us from having to take up the issue ourselves. And because this is Mental Illness Awareness Month, I think it honors those who really wrestle with mental illness to share a definition of what mental illness is and isn't. I chose a definition that I found from the Mayo Clinic, and I want to read it to you. Mental illness refers to a wide range of mental health conditions, disorders that affect your mood, thinking, and behavior. Examples of mental illness include depression, anxiety disorders, schizophrenia, eating disorders, and addictive behaviors. Many people have mental health concerns from time to time, but a mental health concern becomes a mental illness when ongoing signs and symptoms cause frequent stress and affect your ability to function. A mental illness can make you miserable and can cause problems in your daily life, such as at school or work or in relationships. In most cases, symptoms can be managed with a combination of medications and talk therapy. We have such a conflicted Relationship with mental illness as a society of people that I want us to be careful about categorizing or labeling anyone and also careful about our unwillingness to receive a particular diagnosis of a person, whether it be mental illness or whether it be a mental health concern. So I don't think that we can conveniently make peace with the horror of a week ago by saying, well, that was just the way he was, and I'm not like that. You see, because I believe that what we really see in last week, and two years ago in Orlando, and four years ago, almost five years ago in Sandy Hook, is our propensity to violence. We have a propensity to violence People who think of themselves as peace-loving people are probably that because they live in a peaceful situation, put them in a conflict, and I dare say they'll consider violence as an option. Our gospel lesson shows the human proclivity to violent response. Here it is, the vineyard. We understand in this parable that the vineyard owner is God, God's self. And the vineyard is the, God's creation. And God puts in charge of God's creation particular tenants. That would be us. In particular, in this story, Jesus is speaking to the righteous, the chosen ones. They had been given all that God had and were asked to be in charge of it. And you see that as they become familiar with their surroundings, they develop a sense of ownership and entitlement that skews their way of thinking, so that when the servants of the vineyard come, they attack them, beat one, kill another, and stone the other. Again, the Lord of the vineyard sends servants to collect that which is his, and again the violent response, and the third time, even then a violent response, And did you notice that when Jesus says to those that he is telling the story, he says, what do you think the owner of the vineyard is going to do when he comes? They give a violent answer. Did you see it? They said, he will put those wretches to a miserable death. Golly, how inclined we are to use violence to make a way forward thinking that violence can or will make a way forward. And this is a very difficult consideration. If you want to know someone who wrestled with it deeply, you can look at Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was part of the Confessing Church in Nazi-ruled Germany. He did not go with the Church of of Germany in supporting um, Hitler's leadership. He went underground with a few other faithful and dedicated Christians and said, what are we going to do about this? This is evil, and we can't stand by and let it happen. And yet, what can we do? He's done some incredible writings as he wrestled with his own scripture study and prayer in Christian community, trying to make sense of what was the response to stop evil when evil was so huge. We are quick to reach for violence, and this we always justify. Indeed, we see it in our gospel lesson today that those tenants of the vineyard, they can explain why it is they do such horrible things. And I know no one who does something horrible who doesn't have a good reason. So we cannot rely on our justification to be our excuse for turning to violence. We have to recognize that that little germ a violent response lives within each of us and we have to wrestle with what we'll do in a time of conflict when violence is one of the choices because it is always one of the choices some of us were in the holy land last year on pilgrimage visiting israel and the west bank and It was interesting to be there two years. It was interesting for me to be there two years after I'd been there before and to see how things had changed already in such a short amount of time. The tensions have indeed become even more strong, the sides even more tense filled. And it was grievous to see that tension. And I wondered how it is that we can change this narrative, and perhaps it's because we don't have many narratives of a nonviolent approach to that which threatens us. So I was glad when I went to a bookstore that's in the western part of Jerusalem, or the, no, I get it mixed up. Let's see, it's that side, the eastern part of Jerusalem, East Jerusalem. There's a bookstore in um, that Palestinian portion where it's Muslims and Christians primarily that live there, and there's a bookstore that has everything in English. And there were two books there that I purchased. One was of a self-published book from um, a Jerusalem school, is what it's called, there in Jerusalem, comprised of Muslim, Christian, and Jewish students. And the book was called Palestinian Youth Study Nonviolence. It was obvious from the writing that teenagers had written it. It was their, their papers that they had submitted as a junior, senior, you know, near the end of their high school time the sentence structure, the ways it's laid out, the opening paragraph, the concluding paragraph, the body. But I thought, yes, that's the way forward, is to give our young people another image of what could possibly be a way of moving forward together when we are on different sides. I also purchased a book that had been published from a publisher, that was written about various Palestinian villages really comprised of Muslim and Christian people. And the title of the book is called Our Way to Fight, and it's all about nonviolent responses. Story after story of the ways that people have claimed a way forward without violence. I bought these books for me. I want to know those stories because I need to see and to hear examples of responding to, violent, to difficult situations in a nonviolent way. When we had our VBS Plus program here this last summer, which was a first time thing we ever did for counselors in training who were in middle school, we did an afternoon program for them. And they did times of service, and they did times of fun, and they did times of learning. And the theme for VBS for the little kids was heroes. And so we took up that theme for our middle school youth heroes, and we focused on three heroes of the Christian faith from the last century, Dorothy Day, Millard Fuller, and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And when I told them about Archbishop Desmond Tutu and his work with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in response to the horrors of apartheid in South Africa, of its ending and how they sought to make a way forward so that bloodshed didn't continue, 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 When I'm telling these eight youth who are between the ages of um, 7th and ninth grade, one of the kids said to me, how come no one has ever told us this? And I said, I don't know who else would. It's us. The people of the vineyard. God has called us into a new way of being. And do you see that Jesus' response to the righteous people who say he'll throw them out and destroy them, he doesn't say, right. He doesn't say that. He's trying to focus them into a new way of being God's people, a way that, in which they rely on the goodness of God to be God's people. And so not only in this gospel do we see the proclivities of humanity to go toward violence and to justify it, but we see the proclivities of the divine to reach out again and again and again, even when it's injurious to himself, herself, God's self. Again, the Lord of the vineyard reaches out. Again, the Lord of the vineyard reaches out. Again, the Lord of the vineyard reaches out. God is ridiculous with God's abundance, mercy, love, compassion. Throws it away! People destroy it, and God offers it again and again and again. God wastes it for the hope that some people will actually receive it. And that's what Jesus is asking these listeners to do, to receive the goodness of God, which is going to make a new way, built with Christ as the cornerstone, have you not heard, Jesus says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? You might recognize this, those of you that have been in worship um, all your lives in this particular format, that we have a fraction anthem about that. We break the bread, and there's a song. The stone that the builders has reject- have rejected has become the cornerstone. Alleluia. So the stone that the builders rejected didn't just go in the wall, like, oh no, let's do use this one after all. No, it's the cornerstone, the one that grounds the entire building. It's a new way of being, and what happens is it does break us open and make us new, but it does it in a passive way. Hear how it's explained in the gospel lesson this morning. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. God wants to break us open into a new reality, And it is going to break us. We will have to reorient ourselves to live into the fullness of who God calls us to be. It's probably going to hurt in some capacity. But for the future we long for, for the future we want for our children, I'm willing to pay that price. And I hope you are too. We have to find a new way. It's our job. As people of the vineyard, We are called, with God's help, to find a new way. I don't want to preach this sermon again in two years. And mark my word, friends, if we don't come together in study and in prayer and in Christian fellowship to find a new way, it'll happen again in two years. The worst mass shooting in the United States history will happen again in two years. We are called by our gospel lesson to receive the goodness of God. God's giving it away. And in receiving it, God will capture us into a new reality, one where we do reorient ourselves. We reorient ourselves to the God of abundance, the God of life. And in that brokenness, the light of the living God will shine through. And the glory of God will be revealed. Paul counted everything in his life rubbish because of what God offered him in Jesus. Everything. And he had a lot. He would throw it all away in order to be living in the glory of God in Jesus Christ. That's our invitation this morning. Amen.